My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Uh, Welcome back. Good morning. My name is Jay Held, and I get to be the executive pastor here. Taylor just told you that. I've been here for four months now. Can you believe that? Four whole months. But today is my very first day to get to bring God's word to you. So I'm excited. This is a very special day for me. And speaking of special days, two days ago was my 33rd anniversary. So my wife and I, thank you. We've been married 33 years. She's usually here at the nine o'clock hour, but she's gonna go out with some sunrise ladies for lunch. So she's coming at the 11 o'clock or I'd have her stand and introduce you to her. Uh, We've been married 33 years and we have four children and we look forward to serving with you here at Sunrise for years to come. Uh, If you look at your calendar, speaking of special days, in two weeks we're going to have our Easter celebration. And so we're looking forward to you inviting your family and friends to come here for Easter to celebrate together. It's a great time of year for us as Christians to remember the death of And resurrection of Jesus. You may know this, but Jesus never asked us to remember his birthday. We make a big deal in our culture about Christmas, and I think he's honored by that. Don't get me wrong. Uh, There's a whole lot of people that love the Christmas holiday. It's my wife's favorite holiday. The music, the time of year, she would say it's the most wonderful time of the year. And I love Christmas too, but Jesus never asked us to remember his birthday. He did ask us to remember his death, burial, and resurrection. And on the Christian calendar, Christmas is a big day, God with us, Emmanuel, but Easter is an even bigger day of celebration. In fact, we're told at the end of our service to remember his death, burial, and resurrection at communion. We're told to remember it at baptism. We're told to remember it over and over again. Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, is a very important day in the Christian calendar. My favorite holiday, however, is Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. It's just my favorite day of the year. We get together as a family, and our whole purpose on Thanksgiving is to do nothing more than to give thanks to God and eat great food. That's it. That's what you do on Thanksgiving. You come together, 
and you give thanks. And for those of you who are worried about my view of Easter or Christmas, on Thanksgiving, I get to give thanks for Christmas and Easter and everything in between. So I love Thanksgiving. In, in the Jewish culture, on their calendar, they had a Thanksgiving day. Actually better, they had a Thanksgiving week. And their Thanksgiving week was called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Tabernacles. And for one entire week, they were instructed to come together as a people. In fact, they would come to Jerusalem to go to the temple. And Jerusalem used to be about a half a million people, give or take 100,000. But on Feast of Tabernacle, they would pilgrim to Jerusalem and the city would swell to 2 million, some would estimate conservatively to over 3 million people all coming together to eat their best foods, to drink their best beverages, and to do one thing, to remember what God had provided for them in their wilderness wandering. His provision of shelter of food, of water, of clothes and shoes to come together just to give thanks of his provision and his presence. In fact, I want you to look with me at this verse right here in Leviticus chapter 22. I bet most of you don't know that God instructed his people to have an annual church camp out. It really is in the Bible right here. He instructs them, for seven days, you must live outside in little shelters. They were to make little temporary housings, tents, if you please. I don't know about the RV thing, but I think he'd kind of go along with it. He says, for seven days, you must live outside in little shelters. All native-born Israelites must live in shelters. This will remind each new generation of Israelites that I made their ancestors live in shelters when I rescued them from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They were to come together for the sole purpose of giving thanks, of remembering how God had met them, their every single need, and for a week they were to celebrate and remember and celebrate. They were to give thanks not just for how God had provided for them, but how He provides for them in the present and how He provides for them in the future. In fact, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Festival of Tabernacles, had symbols and prayers. Prayers asking God to provide rain because the feast came at the end of autumn. And at the end of autumn, Israel had no rain. The cisterns were dry. The brooks were dry. The the hills were parched. If you went to Israel at that time, there would be very little water available. And they would come together and they'd pray and they'd ask God to bring rains. They'd look into the future. Not only would they ask God for rain, but they would also be instructed in Zechariah chapter 14 to look for a future day when the Messiah would rule over all nations. And all people would come together in the future when the Messiah would be there. And in his presence, all worship him. They were to look forward. 
Israel was to come together to give thanks for what God had provided, what God is providing, and what God will provide in the future. And it's on this very day that we encounter Jesus today in our passage in John chapter 7. If you look with me in John chapter 7, what we see is here Jesus standing up in the temple. And because you can imagine the crowds of people, it says that he shouts. We have microphones today. I'm not going to shout. It would just be annoying to you. But in the ancient world, Jesus stood and he shouted for everyone to hear. He wanted to capture their attention. And this is what he says. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. At the end of seven days of coming together and focusing solely on how God has met your needs... Jesus stood up and he says, if anyone here has any unsatisfied desires, if anyone here has any unmet longings, if anyone here is thirsty, if anyone is dissatisfied about anything at all, and maybe you feel like that. Maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you have sat in a Thanksgiving Day celebration And you were dissatisfied. Maybe you've come into a church service this morning and you've got some unmet longings in your heart. Maybe you've left the church service one day dissatisfied. Is anybody lonely? Is anybody dissatisfied, uh, sexually frustrated, not receiving the recognition that you believe is due to you? Anybody long to be noticed? Do you have any longings that are unmet? Are you thirsty? That's what Jesus is asking. He says in verse 37 and verse 38, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And anyone who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of the innermost part of his being will flow rivers of living water. And here the picture is in the ancient world, all throughout the ancient world, the picture of God's blessing is a lush, verdant river valley where life springs out. And that's the picture that Jesus casts here. That's the vision that Jesus casts here. Turn with me, if you would, or if you want to look on the screen up here, to Genesis. All throughout the Bible, Scripture paints this picture, the blessing of God, as this rich, verdant, lush riverbed. We see it in the very beginning, in the book of beginnings, in Genesis chapter 2. The very first story of Scripture we see in the Garden of Eden a river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. It's showing the very fruitful, powerful provision of God. At the end of the book, in Revelation, we turn to Revelation. At the end of that book, we see a city, the city of God, It says, the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. All through Scripture, from the very beginning to the end, the picture of God's blessing is this river that gives life. In contrast, the psalmist contrasts in Psalm chapter uh, 42, he says, As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. Here, picture, this is not a picture of Bambi playing. This is a picture of Bambi panting desperately about to die from dehydration. That's the picture without this river. So Jesus says in John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Anyone who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit who would be given to everyone who believing in him, but the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus cast this vision, a vision of a better life, a vision of a life where you can come to him and have your deepest desires met, your longings met. He says, come and follow me, trust me, believe in me, and I will give you energy and hope and love and power and joy. And some of you have caught that vision. Some of you have said, yes, I will follow Jesus. And for a time, maybe for some of you, it was a very radical moment in your life. Maybe for some of you, you were at an early age, but for a time, there was this time where you experienced this newness in your life, where you did find peace and love and joy and fullness. But then... As you continue to follow, you find that you're arguing and fighting with your spouse, that you yell at your children, that sometimes you go to bed at night and your soul aches and longs with unsatisfied desires. Maybe at first, your friends around you saw a radical change, but over time, you begin to have a greater sense that there's a gap developing between the vision that Jesus cast and your reality. You're driving down the road and you make hand gestures at the person who cuts you off. You find yourself judging people so quickly, so easily, so carelessly. There's this gap between the vision that Jesus gives and the reality that you have in your life. And the question that I want to answer today is, what do people do with that gap? What happens when someone who begins to follow Jesus and continues to try to follow him, they come to church, but they find this gap between what Jesus promises and what your experience is And for many of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. John Ortberg suggests five strategies that people practice when they experience this gap. I'd like to take just a brief moment and talk about those. And the first one, perhaps the most popular, is a classic one. This this 
attitude of the problem must be that I must try harder. I see this gap. I see the promised life that Jesus gives me. And then I see how my experience is. And you come to the conclusion, the faulty conclusion, that effort, elbow grease, hard work will bring that gap into short distance. And it goes something like this. You know, you hear about somebody who gets up in the morning at 5 o'clock to pray. And you say to yourself, I don't pray enough. And so even though you're not a morning person, you decide that getting up at 5 o'clock and praying is what you should do to close that gap. And so you commit to pray more. And you get up at 5 o'clock. You're dazed and confused. You're groggy and grumpy. Jesus looks at you and tells you to go back to bed. (laughs) But you decide that this is the way I'm going to... It must be good for me. This is me dying to myself. And so you work at it. And for five, six, seven days, you keep it up. And then you miss a few days. And then you go back at it. And then you miss a few. And then pretty soon you find that you can't keep it up. You can't sustain it. And you start to feel guilty about that. And then you try to find another practice to do. A different thing. And then you give that a shot and you give it a go for a while. And then pretty soon you can't keep that up. You can't sustain it. And the truth is, you're getting worn out. In fact, you hear this vision of Jesus and you're exhausted. And it's to you people that Jesus would say to you, you who are weary and heavy laden, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. And you hear those words, and it's confusing to you. Because for you, coming to Jesus is just exhausting. He is not talking about someone who's stressed out by COVID. He is not talking about someone who's stressed out because they have too much work, too many demands. He's talking about someone who has practiced hard work and trying to please God. A religious system that just grinds you down. And Jesus says to you, who are weary, come unto him and he will give you rest. And those words are confusing to you because it can't close the gap. And then the second way that some people try to close this gap is simply by pretending. We know the vision that Jesus gives. We know that we're to aspire to that life. And then what we do is uh, we see the gap and it's not true for us, so we just fake it. We just act like it. Maybe you've met people like this. And I think sometimes when I encounter people like this, it's kind of odd. It's sad. You know, every prayer for them is answered. Every word they hear is from God. They always smile. Jesus just seems to be in every moment giving them everything that they want. A woman falls into this category. She had a son who was depressed, and being depressed didn't fit the family image of a happy family. And she told the son to smile, and the son said no. And she said, smile anyway. And he said, I don't want to. 
I feel depressed. And she said, fake happiness is better than feeling real sadness. We have this weird subculture in the church sometimes that teaches people just fake it. Just pretend. And the odd thing about that is After a while, some of these people don't even know they're faking and pretending. They don't know the difference between pretending and what's really true in their heart. Have a hard time connecting their true emotional state of being and spiritual state of being and what's really going on. The odd thing is, is that people outside the church, they smell it. And it doesn't smell good. It smells pretty bad. It doesn't close the gap. What some people do is they rededicate their lives over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And if some of you have been around the church for a while, you may know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, this is popular in some youth groups. And it goes something like this. We take a youth group out to camp and we get a really effective speaker Actually, what we get is a guy that's really good or a gal that's really good at telling emotional stories because people think that's what it takes to be an effective speaker. And so we get a guy or a gal up there to give a story to the kids. We gather the kids around a campfire, and the story goes something like this. You know, you want to burn bright for Jesus. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to pick up a stick And we're all going to throw it in the campfire and we're going to dedicate ourselves to burn bright for Jesus. Don't fizzle out. And the kids grab their sticks and they dedicate their life to Jesus and they go home and three days later, not a whole lot have changed for them. And so they can't wait to camp next year so they can throw another stick in the fire and What they're really after, what they're really seeking is to try to rekindle that emotion that they once had somewhere back along the way. And so they rededicate themselves and rededicate themselves. And just last week, true story, a seminary student I was working with wrote me and told me that he has rededicated his life so many times that he doesn't care to count it anymore. And it doesn't close the gap. And, and then some people try a different approach altogether. What they do is they change their spiritual venues. Maybe they're a part of a charismatic church. And they think to themselves, you know what I really need? This, this is so shallow. This is so experiential. This is so deep. What I really need is the great theological truths that Christians have handed down. So they'll change their church and they'll go to a reformed church. But what they don't know is that that very church that they just joined was a person in that reformed church that says, our church is so intellectual, is so heady. What I really need is something that's more experiential, something that's more in line with feeling the move of God in that same person goes to the charismatic church that the guy just left. 
And people move from one tradition to another tradition to another tradition, all with the hopes that maybe that'll close the gap. They're, they're going to change maybe from an environment of teaching to an environment of social action to an environment of evangelism or some different emphasis, all with the hopes, the aspiration that changing their spiritual venue will close the gap. But it doesn't. And then for some of you, you just quit. You just come to the conclusion that this vision that Jesus gave is not possible for you. Well, you, you may still go to church. You may still serve in the area of ministry. You hope that you go to heaven when you die. But you've come to the conclusion that this promised life that Jesus offers of love and joy and peace and courage just isn't possible for you, so you give up. And your secret is, it's just not happening for you. And some of you are here today, or some of you are online today listening to this. And my question for you is, what if there is another way? What if Jesus really meant what he said? What if there really is available to us the Spirit of God that flows through us like a river that will fill us with love and power and peace and joy, his presence? What if there really is a different way No faking, no emotional stirring, no grandiose commitment. Rick Warren gives a different picture here. Rick talks about this move of the spirit, and he he says it's, it's like surfing. He tells a story of when he first learned how to, to surf. He took a class on surfing. And he said, when you go to the class, they teach you the basics, like what size board you should get. He, he claims that good surfers use light, thin boards, and they gave him a barge, he said, something big enough that they hoped that he could like jump up and stand on it. And he, and he says that they teach you how to see a wave coming and how to get up on your board and ride the wave. And most importantly, he says, they teach you how not to kill yourself when you're trying to surf. One thing, he said, they never taught him how to make a wave. Whose job is it to make a wave? It's God's job. Your job is to ride the wave. It's God's job to bring a wave. And he says... God just keeps bringing wave after wave after wave. A couple years back, my wife and I were celebrating our anniversary at this time of year. And we went to Fiji. Went to Fiji because um, I had a student of mine. I used to teach at Multnomah University. Uh, I had a student of mine who graduated who went to Fiji and started a mission and was working with pastors just a whole bunch of pastors on the large island there in Fiji. And so he'd asked me to come and train some pastors. And that's how my wife and I could afford to go to Fiji. Thanks for asking. (laughs) 
So I was working with the pastors a week before my wife arrived, and one day we went to the beach. And I got to tell you, there are some good surfers in Fiji. They're so smooth. They hop up on their board, and they make it look so easy. But it's not easy. It actually takes a lot of discernment. It takes a lot of balance. It is anything but passive. And when you botch it, when you wipe out, when you bite it, all you have to do is get back up on the board and ride the next wave. And by the way, when you're learning how to surf, you wipe out a lot. You botch it a lot. Our job is to simply let the spirit flow. Our job is to simply ride the wave. We don't make the wave. We don't have to create that whole thing. All we have to do is ride the wave, which takes some balance and some discernment on our part. There's one thing you need to know you can stop the flow. You need to know that you can stifle, that you can quench the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us this in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19, and I don't want you to work real hard today, but I bet you could remember this verse. (laughs) Do not stifle. Don't quench the Spirit. How do you quench the spirit? By not listening to him. How do you stifle the spirit of God in your life? By ignoring him. If you won't pay attention to the spirit of God in your life, you're not going to be able to let it flow through your life. Don't stop the flow. You don't create it, but you can block it. And when you do, when you wipe out, when you bite it, all you need to do is acknowledge it, confess it, admit it. And the Spirit of God will flow. And that's called grace. All you need to do is acknowledge that you've fallen off the board. I'm going to offer you three steps that you can do to take this further. One, you can join a small group And ask your small group leader to help you learn how to stay in the flow of the Spirit. Small group leaders, learn how to stay in the flow of the Spirit and direct other people. There's another thing you can do. We have in our body two people that I'd like to acknowledge and champion in front of you today. One is Mike Keller. And he happens to be in the room right now. And, and one is um, Courtney Dodds. I just drew a blank. Mike has done mentoring with church planters. Mike has done mentoring with men of all different walks of life. And Mike comes highly recommended to us. One thing that you can do to help you learn how to stay in the flow 
is to ask for a spiritual mentor. And Mike would be a great guy to contact. Courtney has been a missionary. Courtney has ministered to women in a variety of different cultural contexts and women here at Sunrise. And Courtney is a wonderful person to help women learn how to stay in the flow of the Spirit. One other option that you have, we're going to do a workshop next Sunday. We're going to do it at 10.45, just 15 minutes before the 11 o'clock hour so people can get in. And if you're interested in learning more about how to stay in the flow of the Spirit, perhaps you'd be interested next Sunday in a one-week session to come together and talk about the flow of the Spirit. A workshop here at 11.45 to just about noon. Perhaps you might want to do one of those three things. Jesus offers you the best life possible. It really is possible. You can quench the Spirit or you can allow the Spirit to quench your thirst. It's our prayer that you learn how to stay in the flow. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that you do give us your spirit. And John wrote to the church to remind them, to encourage them of these words of Jesus as he stood up at the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And he said, if you have any unmet longing, if you're thirsty, come to me. And I will give you waters of living, incredible depth of experience. May we allow that to meet our deepest longings. In Jesus' name, amen.